0: John 19, we continue this uh, small Easter series we picked up last week Uh, at the beginning of chapter 19. We'll continue on Good Friday as well and get to chapter 20 on Easter Sunday, the Lord willing. And as the title of the sermon suggests, considering the theme of Jesus as the King of the Jews, which uh, comes up. Again and again throughout um, these verses in John 19. The sermon's focusing on verses 19 through 22, but we're going to pick up our reading in verse 12. So, starting in verse 12, but our focus really begins in verse 19. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. This man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Well, Pilate is still not convinced. He has not been convinced of the guilt of Jesus. If you remember from last time, he has beaten him. He scourged him. And he even made him a spectacle. He was the uh, jester for the crowds, a would-be king adorned with a ridiculous crown of thorns and hoping that that would be enough to satisfy the bloodthirsty crowds oh look at this poor fellow that's what we considered last week behold this man what kind of threat is he uh, can't we just let him go uh, but what's the reaction what's the response of course uh, they are not satiated crucify him crucify him and pilate persists though here verse 12 from then on pilate sought to release him He's still trying, but then the Jews play their their trump card, as it it were. They have found the ultimate pressure point. They have brought this man, Jesus, to Pilate as one who claimed to be king of the Jewish people. Surely the emperor, Caesar, would have some concerns about uh, somebody uh, trying to establish a counterfeit kingdom. Uh, Surely the emperor would have concerns about a rival king. But if Pilate doesn't do anything about this, he clearly doesn't care that much about the empire at all. So they say, if you release this man, well, then you are not Caesar's friend. Verse 12. Now, this is not a statement about how chummy Pilate and Tiberius were. It's it's um, It's a political term to be Caesar's friends. It means that Caesar's Pilate's patron. It means that he put him in that position. Uh, If it was not for Tiberius, uh, Pilate would not be uh, the governor of this region. Uh, He appointed him to that position, and therefore Pilate would always be required to act with the honor of his benefactor in mind. Otherwise, uh, the, the emperor would have good reason to be suspicious of what Pilate's doing over there. So they say, look, if you're not going to do anything about this, uh, we think the emperor might want to hear about it and you, you might not be long for this life. And so Pilate gives in and he sends Jesus to be crucified. And as was customary with Roman crucifixion, the charge for which the person was being crucified was written out and was uh, affixed above uh, the person being crucified's head. You'll see that then in verse 19 of our text. John calls it an inscription. Pilate also wrote an inscription. Mark calls it the inscription of the charge. Matthew, the charge against him. Uh, cops today would call it the rap sheet. Right? This is um, the record, the list of wrongdoing, the crimes committed, and it serves a twofold purpose of being up there on the cross. Uh, it proves, first off, why you are hanging there. But second, it warns anyone else from committing those same crimes. So uh, you could picture perhaps a, a young Jewish family walking home one day maybe um, from visiting s- some folks in, in, in the suburbs and now they're heading back into uh, Jerusalem and as they enter the city, as they get near the city, there's um, someone being crucified. This would not have been all that uncommon in the days of the Roman occupation and Uh, the person being crucified above his head, it says thief. And so this Jewish mom takes this opportunity to, to, um, lean down and speak to little Joseph, her son, who, when they were just visiting their friends in the suburbs, he kept taking toys that weren't his. And she says, look, Joseph, listen, do you see what's going on here? Not only is stealing bad, not only does God's law forbid it, but the Romans really don't like it unless you want to end up there. Well, then you better not steal. Right. So this is, this is part of the whole reason. They, they list what people did so that you wouldn't do the same thing. I bet you that young Joseph never stole, ever, again. Well, Pilate makes this inscription, and he makes it in three languages of the charge against Jesus. And what is it? What does he write? Look there at verse 19. What's he write? So, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth the king of the Jews. We have been seeing uh, how in these final moments in the life of Christ he's being mocked again and again. That's what the soldiers were doing as they put the crown of thorns on him, as they put that fake costume on him, as they um, blindfolded him and, and smacked him around and said prophesy who's hitting you. As they spat upon him it's all to mock Jesus and yet in this moment Jesus isn't being mocked, at least not directly. I I do believe Pilate, though, is trying to mock the Jews. He has them in his sights right now, because what he does aggravates them. No sooner does that inscription go above Jesus' head than do the chief priests and the scribes come back, and they whine to Pilate, don't write that this man is the king of the Jews. No, 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 no. Write that that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. Don't you see, Pilate? Our king is Caesar. This is what we're trying to show you all along. We are are loyal to the empire. So so don't write that. Change it. And Pilate doesn't budge. He's, He's done with them. Against his better judgment, he has taken in Jesus. He's interrogated Jesus. He's beaten Jesus. All this against his better judgment. And now, to top it all off, he sent him to be executed. They're not going to get anything more out of him. Pilate is fed up with this group of people. They've woke him up really early, and they've been in, uh, irritating him all morning. No, he's done. He's quite content with what he wrote because it aggravates them so much. This is finally the way he can get back at them. You know, Pilate is, is thinking, let everybody who walks by think that this is all that the Jews have to offer A loser like this, a a pathetic figure from Nazareth of all places. Let everybody think that's your king. Let him be lifted up as a sign to everyone of what the Jews are really like. And so he says, what I've written, I've written. Well, that's what Pilate has written. And this is what Pilate has purposed. This is why he wrote it. A sign to warn others who might dare try to establish a kingdom under Roman rule, but also a dig at the chief priests and the scribes who have been annoying him. That's what he intended. But this morning, I want us to think about what did God intend as Pilate put that inscription above Jesus' head. We saw last week that the crown of thorns... Um, that it taught more than the soldiers ever knew. And the same is true with this inscription. John Calvin, the the great reformer, has a wonderful line in his commentary in John where he says that the providence of God, this is the quote, the providence of God, which guided the pen of Pilate, had a higher object in view. By a secret guidance, Pilate was appointed to be a herald of the gospel that he might publish a short summary of it in three languages, no less. That's what Calvin writes, that under providence, the pen of Pilate was doing more than Pilate even realized. So let's marvel at that providential pen today. What does this inscription actually do? Two things. First, it exonerates Jesus, It exonerates him. Here's a charge that isn't a charge at all. Here's a charge that actually has no crime attached to it. It does not say that he tried to overthrow uh, the emperor of Rome. It doesn't say that he stole the kingship of Israel. Nor does it say that he was a thief, an adulterer, a murderer, a cheat, a criminal, in any sense of the term. And of course it wouldn't say that. It couldn't say that because Jesus is the holy one, the righteous one, the sinless one, the perfect one. 1 Peter two twenty two. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. 1 John 3, 5. He appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Or Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who every respect has been tempted as we are. And if the sentence ended there, we would have no hope. But it says, yet without sin. Yet without sin. And so when Jesus is crucified, what's he crucified for? What did he do? There's no charge, no crime, just a statement of fact. Here is the king of the Jews. And this is what we celebrate at the incarnation, that the spirit of God interrupted the normal course of human propagation, which is sinners begetting sinners begetting sinners begetting sinners. It is only... Jesus, of whom it could be said, as, angel, as uh, the angel tells Mary, that the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you shall be called holy. Only Jesus can that be said of. And it's in this way that Jesus is God of God, that he is light of light, that in him there is no darkness at all. The testimony of Scripture has been clear. And now God, through the pen of Pilate, testifies to it yet again. Jesus is without blame. Jesus is without fault. He is without guilt. Jesus is without charge. And the inscription is proof. The inscription is proof that the worst thing that can be said of Jesus is simply to say he is who he claimed to be. The worst thing about Jesus, that the worst thing that can be said about Jesus... It's the best thing of all. He's the king. The king that they've been waiting for. The one who's, who's fulfilled the promise made to David so many years before. God, through Pilate, is exonerating his son. He is entirely innocent. Does that matter to you? In the, in the movie, The Fugitive... Which um, I found out my wife has never seen, so we're gonna we're gonna be watching that shortly. Uh, there's uh, the the story, for, you know, taken from the uh, TV show back in the '60s, but the movie in the '90s. Harrison Ford plays Dr. Richard Gamble, who's wrongly um, accused and convicted and arrested and convicted of uh, murdering his wife. And um, uh, Tommy Lee Jones plays the U.S. Marshal, who is. Um, charged with bringing him back once Harrison Ford's character escapes and is on the run and there's a very famous scene in that movie where at long last these two characters uh, and it's hard to know who's the protagonist there right Um, but they finally come face to face and there's this standoff and Harrison Ford says to the U.S. Marshal I did not kill my wife and Tommy Lee Jones character answers I don't care Which actually was a line that was improvised by the actor. I don't care. Of course, his point is declaring your innocency, deciding if you did or did not commit this crime, that's not my job. I'm a marshal, and what we do is run after fugitives. You have been convicted, you've run away. My job's to bring you back. And your innocency, if you are innocent or if you're not, it doesn't affect me. I can be apathetic to that, it doesn't matter. I don't care. Well, likewise, it isn't our job to determine Christ's innocence. The judge does that. God, the judge, does that. And God, the judge, has done that. He has done it initially here on the cross with that inscription. He's declaring his son is innocent. But ultimately, it's the resurrection that proves the innocency of Christ. That's why Peter preaches in Acts 2. 24, he says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Why not? Because death is for sinners. The wages of sin is death. Well, what if you're not a sinner? Well, then death can't hold you, death cannot keep its prey. Jesus, my Savior, we sing, and we will sing next week. He's innocent, so he's raised. But we're not the judge of that. God is the judge. God has made that declaration, that vindication. But simply because we do not determine Christ's innocency does not give us the luxury of being apathetic to it. It really matters what you think about this question. Did Jesus ever sin? It really matters what you think about that. What what you say to this. Was he perfect or, or not? And don't say, I don't care. You can't say that. That'd be a tragic mistake. You must care. It makes all the difference. If it's true that Christ is innocent, if it's true that there can be nothing charged against him, if he's true, if it's true that he's entirely sinless, that means he's something more than you or me. He's more than just a mere human, a mere mortal. It means he's divine. And if he's divine, that means. He's above you. He has authority over you. It means that what he says, what he claims, you must submit to. You must. And you can't say, I don't care. It also means that he's exactly what a wretch like you and me need to be saved from the inescapable pull of sin. We need the righteous for the unrighteous. First Peter chapter 3. And so the inscription on the cross, pleads to you along with the entirety of the New Testament that he is none other than Jesus Christ, the righteous. And it is a mistake of eternal consequence to hear that, to see that testimony throughout all the scriptures, to hear me today telling you he is the innocent one. He is the perfect one. He is the righteous one. It is a mistake with eternal consequences to say, I don't care. Jesus is innocent. He's exonerated here. But, you know, that does raise another question. If it's true that Jesus didn't sin and therefore did not commit a crime and therefore was not deserving of death, well, then why is he up there in the first place? Why did God condemn him? Why did God allow that to happen? Wouldn't that now be a sin on God's part to send an innocent man to his death? Let's think about that. That's a good question. It's a good question. Uh, th- and this is, the, this is in part the mystery of the cross. It's hard to say that there's the mystery of the cross. The, the, the cross, as it is the heart of the gospel, uh, it, it contains mysteries upon mysteries. But here's one of the mysteries of the gospel of the cross, is that with Jesus hanging there, there are two contrasting things, contradictory things, being proclaimed simultaneously. The first, on the one hand, is that the inscription nailed above Christ's head shows, as we've seen, that God is exonerating his son before a watching world. He's saying he's innocent. God is condemning the world for condemning him. Look, he's done nothing. The worst you can say about him is that he is who he said he is, that he's the king of the Jews. So in one sense, that inscription is declaring the innocency of Jesus Christ, God saying to the world, know that he goes to the cross not because of anything that he's ever done, not because of any crime he had committed that's what the inscription shows the world. But here's the mystery. Here's that, that, that contradiction. Here's that other thing that's taking place. That's the inscription the world sees, but it's not the inscription that God sees. Did you know that there actually were two inscriptions nailed to the cross? Were you aware of that? There is another one that the world can't see. It's an, an inscription written in a language only God can read. A list of charges only God can see. And we learn of this in Colossians. Turn there now. In your Bibles, let's turn to Colossians together, chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, and look at verse 13. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that is, you're, you're not keeping the law, you, who were dead and rebels, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. There was an inscription of charges, a record of debt, a rap sheet that God himself nails to the cross. Pilate doesn't write it, Pilate doesn't nail it, God writes it, God nails it, this rap sheet. And it's not Jesus's, it's yours. It's mine is every sin ever committed by every sinner who has ever lived or who ever will live for whom Christ died. So we ask, how could God condemn an innocent man to death? And the profound, amazing, heart-melting answer is that he didn't. Because in the eyes of God, Jesus was the guiltiest man who ever lived when he hung on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin. He was the worst sinner who ever lived in the eyes of God because he took our sin. The inscription that Pilate wrote is, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, and the inscription God writes is, Jesus of Nazareth, Chief of sinners. He does not condemn an innocent man. That's how, that's how really, that's how truly Christ takes on our sin. At the cross, Christ is exonerated of ever having committed himself a crime or sin, but also Christ is declared guilty for the sins we've committed, and thank God he was, because then we don't have to be. you and I get off because he's innocent. You see the perfection of Christ, the innocence of Jesus, it's one of the sweetest comforts to the believer and it's the greatest reason, one of the greatest reasons we have for for confidence when we are found to be in him, when we know he's innocent, when we know it, we have confidence. About 15 years ago, I was uh, traveling with the youth group of my home church back then, and we were going up to Quebec City to be part of the OP mission work there. We pray for the Westervelds in Quebec. We used to support them in Hub Spokes, and we went up to do a VBS with that church back when I was in high school or college. I can't remember. I just had another kid. I don't remember dates or things anymore. Um, But this is what I remember is we were crossing the border into Canada, we, we were our van, we had like a 14 passenger van we, we got um, pulled over by border patrol and um, not for a little while, for hours upon hours we were brought into their office, we're sitting there, we're not given much information, they start pulling out all our luggage and they're searching everything and it's only later that we uh, that, that the team found out, we found out uh, that the driver of the bus um, a, a dear friend member of the church Uh, that this driver, in a previous life, a previously unconverted life, had a number of unpleasant run-ins with the law. And he was ashamed of this fact, and so he did not tell the team or the leaders of the team when he signed up to go on this trip. Uh, He was ashamed of that, and he was hoping that it wouldn't come up. It had been so long ago. Uh, He was thinking that it would not catch the eyes of the border patrols. they looked at his passport, but he was wrong. Now, compare what this dear brother felt as he handed the officers his passport, compare that to what the rest of us felt as we handed over ours. I had no concerns whatsoever about what they might find as they scanned mine, ran it through their system, because I knew there was nothing to find. I knew it, so I wasn't worried. There's nothing there. I'm not concerned at all. He did not have that certainty, and so he's sweating. He's afraid. He's anxious. But when you know, when you know you're innocent, you have confidence. It doesn't matter what what people want to, what they want to pry up, what they want to investigate, what they want to scrutinize. You say, I have nothing to hide here. I'm I'm not worried at all. When you offer up Jesus as your passport into that far country, into that celestial city, into that better world, you say, this is what's going to get me in. Friend, believer, have the utmost confidence that there is no... Default there's no defect in him. There's no fault in him. There's nothing anybody can find the world can mock all they want They can question all they like they can scrutinize all that they want, but they will never find anything deficient in your savior And when you know he's innocent, you will have confidence Not just when the world is asking but on that last day when god says why should you get in here? And you say I have jesus that is enough because he's perfect Because on the cross The worst thing they could say about Jesus is the best news in the world. He's the king. He's exonerated. Well, in God's providence, Pilate's pen does a second thing. It exonerates Jesus, but it also exalts him. It declares him to be exactly who he really is, exactly what the world has needed. Israel's consolation, the hope of the world is the one who comes in fulfillment of That Davidic covenant, the one who could usher people into that land of perfect peace and blessing, a king who could put away enemies forever, and Pilate's pen announces, here he is. The event was meant to be a spectacle. Uh, It was public just outside the entrance to the city, so many people could see and mock those who were being crucified and add insult to injury And likewise, Pilate writes the inscription in three major languages so that everybody walking by would know exactly who was dying, none other than the king of the Jews. Nobody could miss it. The Jews read it in Aramaic. Uh, The commoner could read it in Greek, the most uh, commonly used language of the day. Also, the Roman soldiers uh, could read it in Latin, the official language of the empire, of the Roman Empire. The inscription says, king of the Jews. And yet, in writing it in writing it three times in three different languages. Do you know what Pilate was unwittingly declaring? He's not king of the Jews. He's king of the world. He's king of everyone. The cross, even with all of its shame, is actually um, a a greater exaltation of Christ, a greater exaltation than what we think of today. Palm Sunday, when he came into the city, yes, everybody was his fan, everybody's falling, everybody's cheering, and they're all shouting, what? They're all shouting, Hosanna. Well, that's Hebrew. And it was only the Hebrews who were shouting. Everybody, anybody else looking on would just say, this is just some kind of small nationalistic uh, rally, a small sect of people. Only one group of people is declaring him to be king. Pilate here triples that. Three languages. Writes it three times. So that everybody would know, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes. This is the king. The cross, amazingly, astoundingly, has become the throne. Notice how it's stated as just a bare fact. It's just a title. There's no dispute. He's king of the Jews. Now, remember, that's what got the Jews so upset. That's what irritated them. They wanted that charge changed so desperately. Say that, you know, he wished he was king of the Jews. He tried to be king of the Jews. It was only a few days earlier that the whole city was ringing with the sounds of the Jewish people praising Jesus. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. John twelve thirteen, they call him the king right there. Well, now they've rather changed their minds. And they would like to change the, the written official record, too. We don't want anybody thinking that we ever called him king of the Jews. So change it, Pilate. Please. And yet he doesn't. Now think about how amazing that is for just a moment. What we've come to learn about Pilate thus far is that he is a spineless doormat who is willing to roll over and do whatever people demand of him just so he doesn't lose his popularity. He has caved at every moment. And yet for some reason now, when what they're asking of him is actually easier than anything else they've asked him up to this point, right? They're not saying condemn a man to death. They're saying, can you just add one word, just please, just a tiny Fixed on that inscription just a, just a small minor change Here is where he gets Steel in his spine and says no why Because god through Pilate is declaring that nobody can take christ's kingship from him Nobody can That just as Pilate Will not alter the inscription. Nobody can alter this fact. Jesus christ is the king God wants it proclaimed to the whole watching world that the king he appoints conquers on a cross. He turns shame into glory, and he dies to put death to flight. And again, to quote Calvin, he says, If in the writing of Pilate the kingdom of Christ was shown to be so firm that it could not be shaken by all the attacks of its enemies, meaning those scribes who wanted it changed, If in the writing of Pilate the kingdom of Christ was shown to be so firm, what value ought we to attach to the testimonies of the prophets whose tongues and hands God consecrated to his service? Calvin's saying there, do you want proof that Christ is king? Well, how about the fact that this coward Pilate stands up and does not change the inscription? And if you're impressed by that, how about the fact that the entire Bible has been preaching this message, he is king. It's everywhere. You can't miss it. And if you're going to believe Pilate, then you believe the prophets. You believe the apostles. You believe the Bible. So what do you make of that, friends? There is no denying that Christ was proclaimed king at Calvary, at the place of greatest humiliation. He was actually exalted before a watching world. Nobody could miss it. Three times, three different languages. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And you are hearing it today in a language you can understand. You read it in a Bible, uh, in a language that you can read. You can't say you weren't told. You can't say you didn't know. The cross puts the world on notice. This is the king. You must bow to him. And if you think, I don't want to bow to a king who's dying, who's hanging naked, who's so pathetic, then you're missing the whole point. This is where he's exalted. That's what Paul tells us in Philippians, that found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord is king to the glory of God. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your providence, which is mysterious yet powerful. And we see, we've been able to trace in some small ways, even this morning, how you have providentially exalted and exonerated your son through an event that seemed to do the exact opposite. We thank you for a blameless savior, one who was at one point Uh, mocked and ridiculed and derided and despised, but who now is exalted to your right hand, who reigns with you in glory. And we thank you that he suffered to release release us from the prison house of sin, that he would be uh, one to agonize because of our sin and shame, and yet it's through him that we find salvation. So we would hail him. We want to join the heavenly hosts that adore him. We want to see what you saw on the cross. An innocent son bearing the guilt of the world, bearing our shame. and Knowing that he took our record of debt would we respond in praise and thanksgiving? Amen.